through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope that Christ has purchased for us by his death. This evening we come to worship knowing that we have been made alive in him, forgiven of all of our sins, Lord, um, given a hope, an unfading, undefiled uh, hope kept in heaven for us by God's very power. This evening we pray that Christ would be exalted in our midst. We think especially of the baptisms we are about to witness, the testimony of Christ at work rescuing souls and establishing us, Lord, in the hope of heaven and righteousness and life and peace and joy. We pray, Lord, that such hope will especially reach into our hearts as we approach Christmas. We remind ourselves that you are a God who is not just powerful, but who became weak and came for us. A God who came to rescue us from the darkness of this world, from the darkness of our hearts. And we, we worship now, Lord, in the hope of light and truth. We come to you this evening uh, asking that your spirit would be at work, uh, helping us, Lord, as we sing your praise, fill our hearts with affection. May we see you rightly as we ought to, Lord, worthy of our praise. May we worship with such joy. We pray, Lord, that you would also help us by your spirit to understand the truth. We pray for the preaching of your word and ask that you would open the scriptures to us to show us Christ, to show us the reality of sin, to show us the power of Christ over it, to show us the hope of his righteousness, that he is at work in redeeming and reconciling and making the world new. We pray, Lord, that you would this evening be exalted and honored in our midst. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading from uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Romans 6, verse 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. Uh, we always try to give an explanation of what we're doing around here and uh, to do so from the scriptures. And today as we consider... Um, baptism, I want to briefly explain what is going on on the stage. Um, there's a variety of ways that we can answer this question from Scripture, uh, but I will say that baptism is a ritual that points to a deeper reality. Baptism is a ritual that points to a deeper reality. The ritual of baptism is a sign of the reality of our union by faith with Jesus Christ. Our immersion in and rising out of the water is a ritual that displays our union with Christ specifically in his death and in his resurrection. Now, the modern man might scoff at rituals and um, dismiss them as superstitious, ignorant, and the antithesis to reality, but uh, this would be a mistake. Of course, there are rituals that are simply superstitious and have nothing to do with reality. Um, 
But ritual in itself, properly understood, can be a revelation of reality. Rituals and reason and reality are not antithetical to one another, as many modern men foolishly suppose. The question is, what does the ritual signify? And is what the ritual signifies real? That's the question. The short answer to the first question about what baptism signifies is this. Baptism signifies our union with Jesus Christ by faith. Paul says that we have been baptized into Christ. So the most fundamental component of our baptism is not our immersion into water, but our immersion into Christ, which is, he goes on to say in verse 5, what he means is what he means by us being united with Christ. You cannot understand the meaning of baptism without looking through it to see something else, without looking through it to see someone else, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was crucified in our place for our sins, which is to say that the wages of sin is death, and instead of us having to pay this debt, he did. And make no mistake, everybody pays their debts. Um, his resurrection was victory over sin, Satan, and death. As Paul says, he rose to walk as we are called to in the newness of life. The second question of whether or not this is real is simple. God's word says so. And so it is. Accepting divine revelation is not a setting aside of reason or reality. It is the very grounding for reason and our awareness of reality. God's word is the necessary epistemological foundation for truth. And without it, we only have our assertions and our vain opinions. But yes, this is reality. Christ died and on the third day he rose. The fact of this reality has been corroborated by the testimony of each person who will be baptized here today. They have heard the gospel and believe Christ's death, therefore, has become theirs. Christ's life has become theirs. Christ has become theirs by faith. With that, I want to invite up uh, each person to answer some questions and give their testimony. I'm going to ask Bronson to come up first. I'll keep this short, don't worry. Uh, growing up in the church with a Christian family, I don't recall having an uh, exact moment of salvation. I believe it has been more of a slow progression of building my faith and not just following my parents that I was raised on. Although I've struggled with not feeling like a good enough person to be saved, Christ has shown me that it is not me that will ever be good enough, but him dying and being raised that covers my sins. While I still have much to learn, I'm continuing my journey and striving to be the best man I can and Lord willing, a future husband and father. Bronson, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God? I do. Do you renounce evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I do. Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I do. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior? I do. Do you commit your whole life to following him in faith and repentance? I do. And based on your confession, I welcome you to the waters of baptism.
Upon your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're now going to invite James to the front to give his testimony. I thought bad thoughts before I became a Christian. I found that the love of God is more important than anything. Jesus Christ died for us to pay the penalty for sinning, and he is risen. Now I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, James. Okay, we're going to ask some questions, okay? James, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God? I do. Do you renounce the evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I do. Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I do. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? I do. And do you commit your whole life to following him in faith and repentance? I do. And based on your confession, we welcome you to the waters of baptism. Upon your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sorry, I don't know if you guys caught um, James's little testimony, and I was his teacher um, last year, and so I just don't want this to pass without you understanding what he said. Um, he said, I thought bad thoughts before I became a Christian. I have found that the love of God is more important than anything. Jesus Christ died, to pay, died for us to pay the penalty for sinning, and he has risen. Now I want to follow Jesus with every step of my life. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure you didn't miss it. I could hear it from here, but. Thanks, Pat. All right, I'm gonna invite Alice up. Okay, Alice. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God? I do. Do you renounce evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I do. Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I do. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? I do. And do you commit your whole life to following him in faith and repentance? I do. And based on your confession, we receive you to the waters of baptism.
Upon your confession of faith, I baptize you with the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, Wesley and Elsa, come on up. Okay, we'll begin with you. Okay, Wesley? Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God? I do. Do you renounce evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I do. Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I do. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? I do. And do you commit your whole life to following him in faith and repentance? I do. And Elsa, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness which rebel against God? I do. And do you renounce the evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I do. Do you renounce the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I do. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior? I do. And do you commit your whole life to following him in faith and repentance? I do. Based upon your confessions, I welcome you to the waters of baptism. Wesley, upon your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elsa, upon your confession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's join our hearts in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to save sinners that even the grave, even the undefeated tyrant death could not overcome your son. But indeed, through him, you have overcome Satan and sin and death, and you offer forgiveness in his name. Lord, we pray together and we lift up our brothers and sisters who have received the testimony of your son who have put their trust wholeheartedly in him. We pray that you would preserve their souls, that you would preserve their faith, that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would not let the seed of your word be swept away, be uprooted, but it would go down deep, that it would take root, that they would bear much fruit to the glory of your name, we pray. And amen. Would you stand and sing with us?
If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Ephesians for our time of confession this evening. Ephesians, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, as we come into Advent uh, and singing this song, remind me, uh, one of the great promises of the Old Testament is that uh, on those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is a reminder of Christ's coming. It's a, a promise that he will come, that his light will uh, actually eclipse the darkness. Um, but uh, I wanted to think this evening about the importance of confession in uh, destroying the darkness, dispelling the darkness. Uh, first and foremost, just as Alex reminded us, uh, because our lives give testimony to the power of Christ, to the life of Christ, to the light of Christ. We were the darkness. Not you were in the darkness. Not you suffered under the darkness. You were the darkness, Paul says. Our sin makes us the evil of this world. It's not out there. It's in here. And the testimony that we have as Christians is that the light of Christ, the truth has come and set us free from the domain of darkness. That Christ in dying for us has rescued us from ourselves into his kingdom of love and righteousness, the kingdom of light and truth. Confession then is the acknowledgement of these things. Confession is the acknowledgement of these things. It's not just a, uh, a, a profession or a discussion about what sins we have committed. That's not confession. Notice that Paul says that it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. There's a way that we can talk about sin with no real acknowledgement of it being sin, of it being darkness, of it being evil. We kid ourselves that it's something that's uh, tameable. It's something that can be kept at bay and not put to death. But instead, what Paul says is, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Bring them to the light of truth. Confess that our, uh, our works of sin are evil. Somebody is always hurt by our actions of sin. Somebody is always dishonored, namely God. We need to confess these things. We need to confess that we have contributed to the darkness of this world. And when we bring these things to the light, when we expose our darkness through confession, what happens is Christ is shown to be glorious. Glorious in his righteousness, that Christ never sinned. Glorious in his salvation, that Christ died for our sins. And glorious in his mercy, that he now invites us to be free from the darkness and to walk in the light. Confession is the way that we come into the light. 
we confess truly the hurt of sin and truly the, the gloriousness of Christ. Our hope for us, Christmas and right now, is that if we obey this command, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. The hope is that if we will expose the darkness, if we will confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I invite you to that this evening, that we would confess our sins and in the hope of Christ who has come for us, continue to worship in the light this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I first and foremost confess my sins and the ways that I am too ready to dismiss my sins as less than darkness, less than evil. Thank you for Christ who shows us, Lord, how horrible our sin is, that we would put the Son of God to death if, if it were up to us. Thank you for the testimony of little James, the reminder, Lord, that each one of us, even to our thoughts, has thought bad things, has wished for evil. And though we are in the darkness, Lord, though we are the darkness, Christ came for us in his mercy. We confess that he is uh, perfect. We confess that he is gracious and abounding in steadfast love and has offered to us hope, hope that we can be forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and invited into the light. We pray, Lord, that now we would give testimony uh, to Christ by forsaking the darkness and walking in the light as children of the light. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to worship now in the hope and the joy of forgiveness, a free conscience, standing before the Lord, knowing that Christ has paid for every last sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in these things. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, I will invite the ushers up as we will now pass around our offering. Uh, we consider this a part of our worship here at Hill City. We invite those who are members of Hill City uh, to partake in it. We don't ask if you're not a member. Uh, feel free as you are led and feel generous. Um, but we will commit this now uh, to the Lord in a brief word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we think of your great generosity in sending your son and dying for us to invite us into the riches of heaven. And we confess, Lord, now that we, we want to acknowledge these things by giving generously to the work of the church, to the work of Christ's kingdom, and ask, Lord, that you would help us to give cheerfully and joyfully and worshipfully of Jesus. We pray that you will use these things, Lord, our meager offerings, for the good of your people, that the light of Christ might shine on more. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do your work of salvation even here today through these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord? She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood. Yeah. 
Scripture reading for a time of prayer comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Spirit, and we do pray that your name would be hallowed. We pray that you would cause your name to be revered as holy as it ought to be, that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, to see and to hear your word, to respond as creatures ought to, to their creator and to their redeemer. We pray, Lord, that through your son, that you would reorient this entire world, the entire <clears throat> cosmos around your glory. What has been bent and broken and reversed, distorted, that you would again make straight. And this begins with the hallowing of your name. And so we pray first and foremost that our hearts would be reoriented where we have been misaligned, where we have given way to idolatry, where we have revered, created things over you, the creator. We pray for your forgiveness and we pray that you would reorient our hearts. We ask that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. We confess, Lord, that when each man does what is right in his own eyes, that this world descends into chaos and destruction. The solution is not the abdication of man's duty to God, but a recovery of man's worship of God and his duties beneath him. We were not meant to rule as gods, but to walk with you, to worship you, to obey you, to love you as you have loved us. And so in this world where the kingdoms of men have brought corruption and misery, we pray that your kingdom would come, where the will of men has triumphed 
for their own selfish and vain purposes. We pray, Lord, that your will would be done. Your will is revealed in your word, not our speculations, not our presumptions, our opinions, but you have plainly revealed yourself, and so we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. We confess our constant need as creatures that we are inherently dependent, that although we like to live as though we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul, that we live in such precarious dependence on a thousand factors at each moment. Beneath all of them is you, the creator and the sustainer of all life. Your word tells us that you not only created the universe, but you sustain it by the word of your power. That every molecule in existence is intentionally upheld and ordered so that life can function. And we also confess, Lord, that beyond our daily bread, we are in need of bread from heaven. We confess that we do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from you, that life is sustained by your word. And so we pray that you would not only meet our physical needs, and we thank you for doing so, but you would meet our spiritual needs, that you would nourish us with the word of God. Even now, as we turn to the preaching of your word, would you give us our bread? We pray that you would forgive us our debts as we have confessed our sins, and that you would give us the grace to forgive those who are indebted to us, that we would not be like the man who has forgiven so much only to turn around and to order payment minuscule in comparison to what he owed from the man who owed him, that we would be a gracious people, that we would not revile when reviled, that we would entrust ourselves to the ones, to the one who judges justly, that we would um, love much because we have been forgiven much, that we would be tender-hearted people, slow to anger and quick to forgive as you have been with us. We pray that you would lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We confess that we wage war not against flesh and blood, that there are powers and forces beneath human evil, behind human evil. And we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And amen. Would you stand with us?
Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'll read from verses 22 to um, 38. There should be some Bibles in the pew in front of you if you haven't brought one. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed 
and a sword will pierce through your own heart also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at this very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, this news of a Savior that is born to us, Christ the Lord, is objectively good news for all people. And yet the sad state of our heart in our blindness and darkness, this, that we cannot receive it as good news apart from the work and the power of your Spirit. So we pray that you would intervene this evening into whatever blindness, whatever distractions may be present. May we be able to see Christ and see him as precious, as the only hope for mankind. We pray you would be with us this evening, you would lift up and glorify your name. We pray this in your name. Amen. So you might have guessed from this passage, we're going to be changing course for the next number of weeks um, towards what's uh, always been an important season for us here at Hill City Baptist Church, and that's uh, Advent. Despite the fact that we always manage to miss the first week of it every year. So this year we're overcompensating, <laughs> starting a week early. <laughs> But I'm sure some of you, or at least the augers, have put up your Christmas lights already. So we may as well get started into the hope and light of Christmas as well. Uh, in light of that, and before we get into the substance of our text, um, I want to take a few minutes to explain why we think it's important to spend some intentional time considering seasons like Christmas and Easter. Um, one critique sometimes leveled against Protestants and as Baptists, we're kind of the worst offenders, uh, is that in our zeal to smash idols, uh, we often end up smashing a whole lot of other things as well. Um, and we see this overreaction in your typical modern church building, for example, which for the most part are um, ugly and institutional. This one's okay. Uh, like the prison kind of institution. But even worse than this are the lives of many uh, confessing Protestants, which are often also ugly and institutional. But austerity and asceticism and disagreeableness aren't fruits of the Spirit. What they often are are attempts at trying to be holier than God. So we smash certain idols over there, you know, certain uh, traditions and liturgies. Then we proceed to set up new idols over here. 
call it piety or biblicism. It's interesting to note that God not only tolerated but commanded the observance of various feast days in the Old Covenant, sometimes weeks, in which the Israelites would break from the normal rhythms of life to recall God's faithfulness to them. David reminds us in Psalm 8 that God created us a little lower than the angels, which means, among other things, we are not animals and we are not machines meant to just keep on grinding away in our lives, in our jobs, in our trials, in our griefs, without intentional seasons set apart to remember and to worship. And though the reformers got rid of a number of liturgical holidays, they also kept what were known as the evangelical feast days, which included Christmas, Good Friday, the Ascension, Pentecost, Easter. It was a way to remind Christians that the calendar year isn't primarily about our little plans and projects, but about what God has done in history and what he is doing. One author commented that unless the day-to-day activity of life goes forward within a framework of worship, humanity becomes misshapen and social life degenerates into a kind of slavery. And for the most part, that's what many lives have become. Mindless machines just working for the weekend instead of people whose lives are ordered around the person and the work of Christ. And so at the beginning of this Advent season, I thought it would be uh, helpful, hopefully instructive, to look at the lives of two people whose lives were ordered this way, towards what God had done and to what God was going to do in the midst of a bleak and dark time. Israel had become exactly what the quote I just read warned us about. It had become misshapen and degenerate. A far cry from what God had called them to be, a light to the nations. She had become so dark and diseased and effective, a miracle would need to take place to restore her. And I think we find ourselves in a similar place today where much of the professing evangelical church is misshapen and degenerate, if not just straight up unregenerate. And the professing church has found herself in similar periods throughout history, oriented not towards God, but towards self and comfort. And the solution isn't to be afraid or to jump ship or to give up or just, you know, shut the doors and shiver away in our sanctuaries, but to trust and rest in God's promise of provision. That's what God's people have always done. As Anna and Simeon 
did, which is what I want to look at now. Three things. First, we'll consider the source of God's provision. The sum of God's provision next. And finally, the solace of God's provision. Let's first look at the source of God's provision. We're introduced to these two saints, Simeon in verses 25 to 35, and Anna in verses 36 to 38. We're not given a whole lot of information on these folks, except that they both seem to be prophets, and that they both lived these kind of parallel lives of waiting. Uh, verse 25, Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Verse 37, uh, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And they weren't alone in their waiting either. In verse 38, we read that uh, after Anna saw Jesus, she went out and started speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So it wasn't just these two. There were many people waiting for the promised Messiah who would come and save his people from their sins. Notice this posture of waiting from Simeon and Anna. It was a posture of expectancy. In other words, a posture of need. Clearly, Simeon and Anna were familiar with the prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah was going to be. Verse 26, he was going to be the Lord's Christ. He would be God's means of salvation, verse 30. He would be a light to the Gentiles and a glory for Israel. He would come as a consolation or comfort for Israel, verse 25, and the redemption of Israel in verse 38. In other words, he's the kind of person you don't make happen. The Messiah was not like a calling that someone has or aspires to be one day. The plan and purpose and birth of the Messiah was something God had promised, and only he could bring it about. This is what Simeon and Anna were waiting for. And this might seem like a very basic thing to comment on, and it, and it is. It's also the hardest for us to grasp. We have grown so used to getting what we want when we want it. We can get our food delivered to our doorsteps. We can downgrade or upgrade our phone plans whenever we want. We can get in touch with anyone instantly anywhere in the world with a text. We can rebuild amputated limbs. We can go to space. I saw yesterday we can all expect space hotels in the future. If you've got a few millions, you want to drop on that. So we can do all these things. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, we really can't do much especially where it matters. We can't stop sickness. 
We can't stop death. We can't stop hurricanes or earthquakes. We can't stop wars. We can't bring home wayward children. We can't fix broken marriages. We can't fix ourselves in any substantial way. We can't do any of these things and a whole lot of other things. And that's not a flaw. It's a feature. God made us needy and dependent beings so we would look outside of ourselves like Simeon and Anna, knowing they did not have the power to rescue their beloved but fallen people, Israel. They were forced to wait on God's timing, on God's provision. In our sin and our blindness, rather than turn to the provider of all things, we come up with all kinds of ways to avoid that, looking to God rather than ourselves. One of the most popular strategies today is just to kind of maintain a, a small, insular life where you never have to be pushed out of your comfort zone. Don't get married, don't have kids, you know, get a cat instead. Get an easy job, don't watch the news, don't have friends or have only very shallow friends. Don't ever think much about why you do what you do. When hard things do come, things we can't escape, sickness, job loss, death. There's always other forms of comfort and consolation, isn't there? Alcohol, drugs, porn, games, food, buying things. Also, we can avoid that painful acknowledgement that we aren't enough. It would have been way easier for Simeon and Anna to just Forget this whole Messiah thing, which had become the center of their lives. You know, I'm tired of having to live every day in this posture of constant need and dependence. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It's not fulfilling. Their whole ministry spent in praying for God to do and achieve the things they couldn't do themselves. It's a humbling thing to have to wait on the Lord. To not have the power to bring about what needs to happen. To live life in need. But this is the Christian life. This is the only Christian life there has ever been. And Christians can have the fullest, freest lives because... It's not about constantly assessing what we think we can handle. It's about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, whatever that is, and following him, knowing full well we don't have the power to do any of it in ourselves. In many ways, Simeon and Anna's posture mirrors David's in Psalm 21. David at the end of his rope, yet again, the story of his life. 
What does he do? There's, some, there's a psalm, I forget where it is. He, he asks God to make him a bird so he can just fly away to the forest and not have to deal with any troubles, right? That was David at his lowest. But here in Psalm 121, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. David knew that his help and provision lay outside of himself. Just as Simeon and Anna knew that Israel's salvation lay outside Israel. Only the Lord can bring about his Christ. Only the Lord can bring about his salvation. Only the Lord can bring about a light for the Gentiles and a glory for the Israelites. Only the Lord can bring about consolation and redemption. Where are our eyes, our eyes, directed this evening, this Christmas? Up to the mountains? Outside of ourselves, like David and Simeon and Annas? Or looking down? Or around? Or worse, within? For what only God can do. The hope of Christmas really is that it's something that exists outside of ourselves. God sent his son as an atonement for sin and a righteousness for sinners. That truth exists irregardless of how you or I feel about it. Just like Bethlehem's star shone just as fixed and bright, whether or not Herod believed the prophecy. That's why we can stand up here and announce it indiscriminately as good news to all people. Brothers and sisters, let's take an honest look at the posture of our life this evening. Are we waiting patiently and expectantly for God to work? Or are we spinning our wheels trying to make things work? Simeon and Anna spent years waiting on God, waiting on God to do what only he could do. And when he finally did, they were able to receive it with joy. All they could do was be obedient in the time and place God had put them. And that's all any of us can do, and it's the most we can do. Consider your straying child Consider your breaking marriage. Consider your cooling love for Christ. Consider all your fears and anxieties and griefs and trials. How many pounds of anxious toil will you need to invest before you bow your knee? Like Simeon and Anna on that cold temple floor and acknowledge that God must act or all is lost. And then when he does, there's nothing that can stop him. Secondly, we see the sum of God's provision. Uh, it's no accident that uh, messianic themes are all over fiction and literature. 
someone who's going to come and rescue a beaten people from their enemies, you know, some hero that's going to show up and just blast the bad guys. We all know we need a savior. The problem is, and Ryland was mentioning this earlier, we don't want to acknowledge that the primary thing we need to be saved from is ourselves. We want to locate the enemy, the problem, somewhere out there. It's Trump. It's the liberals. It's CO2. It's the environmentalists. It's the Nazis. It's the Marxists. They're the problem somewhere out there. Even the Israelites, they thought the Messiah was going to show up and save them from the Romans. But actually, he was going to show up and save them from themselves. We don't want a Savior to show up and say, all, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whoa, don't make this about us, Jesus. They're the problem out there somewhere. And when he insists, as he did throughout his ministry, no, it's actually you. What do we do? We kill him. Which is exactly what happened. But Jesus isn't like our feeble, made-up messiahs. He's in a category all his own. What is he like? What's he going to come and do? Well, we're told in verse 32 that he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel, which puts us all at the point of need. If Gentiles need a light, it means they're currently in darkness. If Israel needs glory, that means they're currently deficient in glory. John tells us that with the coming of Christ, the people who walk in darkness will see great light. And upon them a light will dawn. Because we are made in God's image, every one of us has this impulse towards worship. Because of sin, that image is broken. Which means our worship never points in the right direction. And we end up creating gods in our own image. Because we're the kind of people who are exacting and brutal with each other, those are the kinds of gods we create. Those are the kinds of societies we produce. People who want to look back on pagan cultures of the past as if they were some kind of you know, vital, heroic, humane places are either lying to you or completely ignorant. If you want to viscerally feel what Scandinavian Christians thought about their pagan past, read Beowulf. Before the arrival of Beowulf, who was pictured very much as a messianic figure, what were all the tall, experienced, buff Viking warriors doing? Were they burning and pillaging? No, they're hiding in their mead halls with the doors locked. It's not because they're cowards. 
It's because they know they're no match for whatever demon was out there lurking in the darkness. The dragon, Grendel, is a literary manifestation of the horrifying reality of paganism. Simeon's prophecy here reminds us that Jesus Christ came as a light into that pagan Gentile darkness in all its myriad forms. Not as a comrade in arms, not as an esoteric preacher, not as some kind of spiritual figure who's going to help us cope with the anxieties of life, but as an answer to the darkness. Jesus comes as a conquering, illuminating king so that those who lived in fear of death all their lives, i.e. all of us, no longer have to fear. That is Christ to the Gentiles, to all of us. Don't be fooled by Marvel's cartoony reimagining of old world paganism or our culture's kind of, you know, trendy flirtation with neo-paganism. It isn't harmless. It isn't nothing. It's where all of us came from at some point in our past, and there is nothing for us back there except darkness and despair. Our hope lies under the Christmas star to the Savior in the manger. If you want to see the Father, you have to follow the Christ. There's no other way. And if you are outside in that darkness this evening, you need to come in. And I'd call it an invitation, but it's not really. If Christ really is the king over all kings as he is, then he demands your allegiance. And you will find there is no better king. What about Israel? It says here that Christ will come as a glory to his people Israel. What does that mean? Didn't Israel already have the, the glory, the light of God's law? Right? They were entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul says in Romans. What do, need do God's special people have of further salvation, of further glory? Well, it turns out that the glory of the law, as bright, as good as it was, was a fleeting glory. It was a glory that was passing away. It was a glory that would someday be eclipsed by an even greater glory to come. Simeon announces that Christ is that greater glory. Not only bright and glorious in himself, but glorifying, purifying, refining whoever he comes into contact with. Israel had become a nation riddled with hypocrisy. Various sects and cults had taken the place of true religion. God says at one point through Hosea, Hosea, my people are bent on turning away from me. That's all going to change with Jesus. 
In verse 34 and 35, we read he's going to come for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, Christ was going to come as a set of scales, weighing, measuring, discerning. That's what light does. It exposes. Which is why Jesus is such a controversial figure. Some will see the light of Jesus, John says, and flee. Because they love their sin and the anonymity darkness provides. Others will see Jesus and be drawn to his light irresistibly so their sin can be exposed and confessed and forgiven. Which would we rather have? A made-up savior of our own devising for a made-up problem, or at least not the real problem? Or a real savior for a real problem, our problem of sin? The consolation of Christ isn't that he came to reassure us in the death we were already living in, but to call us into life. He came to create a new people of God, uniting both Jew and Gentile under the one banner of his new people. Finally, let's look at the solace of God's provision. In the midst of his suffering, Job tells his friends, Man is born into trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. David says 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we fly away. To be a human living in this world is to be a partaker of grief and trouble which means that we're also the kind of people who are always seeking consolation and comfort. Now, consolation is an important word. It means to, to come alongside someone in deep suffering and to care for them in the midst of it. It's a thicker word than just comfort. It's not just sympathy. It's not just empathy. It's not just you know, I've been where you are and I know what that feels like. It's the idea of entering into someone's suffering and helping carry them. Now, we're very limited in our ability to console and comfort other people as humans. I'm sure you felt that for a variety of reasons. But Jesus isn't limited as we are. And his comfort and his consolation goes far beyond anything we could come up with. We read this in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Christians, we often have this view that our sins and sufferings are things that 
we just kind of deal with on our own. You know, that's just my burden to bear, we say. And we say it with a kind of pathetic pride. But the incarnation wasn't just so we could be saved from hell and then go on to live our lives apart from Christ. The incarnation means not only that Christ willingly took on the burden and punishment of our sin, but that he willingly took on the burden of our entire life, our sufferings, our sorrows. A large part of the incarnation is the reality of Christ's ongoing ministry for his sheep. Maybe we're not as joyful at Christmas as we should be because we forget that part. What if we viewed our suffering, our sorrows, our sins as willingly, gladly, competently intercepted by Jesus Christ? How might that change things for us? If you, as a, as a child, were tasked with building a massive stone wall, how would you feel about that? Probably not very hopeful, right? I can't even lift one of these rocks, let alone build a whole wall of them. And standing right nearby is a massive, strong man who builds stone walls for a living. And he's just kind of wondering when you're going to stop and let him build the wall. And yeah, maybe he'll let you pretend you're carrying some of the stones. Look at Anna here. She lost her husband after only seven years of marriage. And yet when she finally sees God's provision, she's able to rejoice. She's able to share in the joy of the moment because her eyes are fixed towards God's provision not what she can muster up herself. Look at Simon, Simeon. He can't stop blessing people. He's blessing God. He's blessing Mary and Joseph and Jesus. In that moment, he's completely forgotten about himself and his problems and his griefs because the superior consolation has arrived. Do we believe that here this evening? Do we believe that in Jesus Christ we find God's final answer to the problem of suffering? Do we believe that whatever conflicts, whatever anger, whatever bitterness, whatever resents, whatever fears, whatever disagreements, whatever deeply embedded griefs lie in the room this evening, however impossible and complicated and convoluted, can be resolved in the Savior. If we don't, well, shame on us and shame on our profession. If Christ can reconcile a righteous God with a sinful people, how can we not be reconciled to each other? The reason Christians get so bent out of shape when people try to have a Christmas without Christ is because without Christ, there's no Christmas. Without the person and work of Christ, 
We can't talk about hope or joy or peace in any meaningful sense. All we're left with is a kind of empty festival, hopefully a few good feelings along the way. Without Christ, there's no solution to the Israel-Palestine crisis. Without Christ, there's no solution to the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Without Christ, there's no solution to estranged marriages and estranged families and estranged friends. Until we acknowledge God's King in Christ, Nothing changes in our world. He is the only agent of peace and our only consolation. Let's pray. Lord, I praise you that despite the weakness of the messenger, the power of the message is the same. We thank you for the hope of the incarnation the hope of Jesus Christ who came not as a solution for those who consider themselves to be righteous or in no need of a savior, but for those who feel their need and see their need. We pray this evening that you would help us to see our need this evening, see our need of a savior who is outside of ourselves, who is Christ the Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. We have the uh, opportunity now to partake in the Lord's Supper. I'll call the ushers forward now. This is an opportunity for Christians, for those who have put their faith in Christ, to, to be reminded, really, of the substance and source of their salvation. In the broken body and blood of Christ is our hope, not in anything we can do for God. Um, after we pass the elements around, I'll come back up and we'll pray together.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these uh, very physical, tangible reminders of your grace towards us. We thank you for the cross of Christ, which is for all who will come to you in confession of sin, will find forgiveness in life. We pray that you would nourish us with these reminders. We pray all this in your name. Amen. If your faith and trust are in Jesus Christ, I invite you to take the Lord's Supper with me now.
wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us close in singing the doxology together. A reminder for those who